Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 96, the one about the power of introverts, beat edit for video production, captivate podcast 2.0, and the film The Menu. Let's get on with the show. Well, hello and welcome to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are back for more news, tech content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. Joining me, a man on a mission to keep marketing simple, the author of Cats, Mats, and Marketing Plans, and the host of the Roger video series, I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Oh, thank you so much. And of course, I'm also joined by a man who's also on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast and many, many other video series. Please welcome all the way from la france monsieur pascal fintoni thank you very much we're recording this on the day of the um anglo-french summit ah. or the french show english summit depending which side of the channel do you know you're looking at it you know <laughs> but uh, ultimately this is all about people getting along and this is why i want to say thank you to a bunch of people we've received some lovely messages and likes and comments from tim lewis making sang seven mccormick roland millwood shahad dot hussein jeff aiken laura perman simon raybould adam goodwin john dolezal laura middleton richard turb amanda williams petter from mentor pilot and the team at free pick Wow, that's a pretty decent list, Pascal. People are listening to the show, so thank you so much for that. Yeah, no, thank you. And I know that there will be a lot more listeners that you know you don't have to like and comment on anything we do. But if you can spend a millisecond to do so, that helps a lot with outreach and engagement and with the um, algorithm. We've got a pretty you know information and news packed episode as always. But I must make a small confession. I feel very tired today. Oh. Two reasons, Roger. We had the most almighty storm last night here in France. I mean, literally, it was scary. Um, but also. I watched your film selection for today, and I think because of that, I couldn't sleep so well either. <laughs> well, I have to disappoint you then, Pascal, because here in Edinburgh, it's an absolutely glorious day. There isn't a cloud in the sky. We do have a light dusting of snow, probably mm-hmm. about a half an inch, if that. Uh, the rest of the UK apparently has been absolutely um, blizz- blizzarded out by uh, snowstorms. But here in Edinburgh, we've done really well. And I'm sorry about the film giving you a restless <laughs> night, but it's a great one to talk about later. Uh, absolutely. So before we get into film marketing, let's move on with our first segment in the news. Great news. Cadbury is bringing back the worldwide Easter egg hunt for the third year. If you want to hide a virtual Easter egg for a friend or a loved one, simply go to worldwidehide.cadbury.co.uk. Okay, well, the Hong Kong Free Press have been reporting on a new trend. Outdoor live streaming. Broadcasters gather most nights in well-lit city spots, chatting and singing to their online audience, scrolling through live streams. YouTube will be retiring the overlay ad from the 6th of April 2023. A welcome move as overlay ads are disruptive for viewers and a very small percentage of creators make any money from them anyway. Okay, well, as does Have Your Elf a Merry Christmas, <laughs> featuring Will Ferrell's buddy, the elf character edited into an Anster store, was the nation's favourite TV ad of 2022, according to a study from System One and ITV. The US House Foreign Affairs Committee voted to give President Joe Biden the power to ban Chinese-owned TikTok. The European Parliament, European Commission and the EU Council have all imposed bans on TikTok on staff devices. 
Okay, well, Home Depot launched a virtual kids' workshop experience in the Roblox virtual space. Gamers go on the scavenger hunt to build their own projects and can redeem store vouchers. Toblerone has been ordered by the Swiss authorities to remove the image of the Matterhorn mountain peak from its packaging after some of the chocolate bar's production is moved outside of Switzerland. And finally, English online bingo site Foxy Bingo opened a mullet-only salon in Newcastle <laughs> to encourage people to get their fox on. And don't worry, for those unable to make it to the salon, Foxy Bingo also launched a Foxy Mullet Snapchat filter. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's fascinating, you know, the way in which people are now using more uh, physical presence, you know, to market something that is online. And conversely, those who have the online presence like Home Depot are, going, are moving towards virtual. But I need to ask you uh, for your reaction on Toblerone, having to remove the kind of, it's, it's a graphic really, uh, that most of us would have missed in, in any case of the Matterhorn Mountain because they are removing some of their production outside of Switzerland. Well, this is really interesting. Interesting, funnily, you should have included this as a news item because I nearly selected an article about this very topic as my content spotlight uh, because somebody was having a real rant about how it would destroy the brand image of Toblerone and, you know, the mountain is an integral part of the packaging. But this article actually said, Do you know what? They'll replace it with something that looks vaguely similar to the Matterhorn and the vast majority of people won't even notice the difference. And they use it as that sort of uh, example of how it is sometimes it's important to have brand values it's out, uh, important to have brand guidelines you know there's got to be a white line around your logo and the logo can never be more than x inches or whatever it might be yes it's important to have brand guidelines but sometimes you can actually take it to the extremes and you know you can you can become brand police and yet the customer probably doesn't even know, notice the difference. So I think that yes, people within the marketing team will be upset about this, but they'll go away, they'll get somebody to, to come up with an image of a mountain that looks a little bit matterhorny, if that's the right way of putting <laughs> it, and they'll put that on the packaging and maybe they'll do some focus groups in six months time and I guarantee that nobody will notice the difference. For me, what is interesting, because I traveled, um, well, you know, I, I came to see it, didn't I, in Edinburgh, and I traveled recently yeah. to host a conference. And, of course, I brought back some Toblerone. It seems mm. to be like the thing you have to do if you travel through an airport. And for me, the the, the brand is the lettering. It's the typeface. It's the very specific red the, you know, of the Toblerone. I think there's a shadow effect in gold. I must confess, I don't think I've ever paid attention to the to the mountain bit. So, to your point, they could change it to something that symbolizes a mountain. There could be a combination of you know of triangles and so on. I think it would be more uh, uh, kind of evidence if they change the typeface and and the, that particular red that they've adopted for the last few years. Yeah, I mean, maybe they could come up with a a special marketing campaign where each week or each month they have a different mountain from a different country. Yes, and then you, you go online and I suggest which mountain this is to win, you know, your own weight in Toblerone. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> we should be doing marketing for a living, Roger. <laughs> so I wanted to take you back to this Hong Kong Free Press um, reporting on a new trend, outdoor live streaming. And I must confess, the moment I saw the, the headline and I read the, the article uh, more fully, I had this incredible flashback to the very first time I believe we met, which was a private mastermind session hosted by Chris Ducker. 
And I had the immense privilege and pleasure of closing the session with my kind of um, sharing a, a warning message to people, be very, very careful. This live streaming stuff is going to become very uh, samey. People are going to be stuck indoors with a flat wall behind them and so on, which is very much the case today. Um, for the purpose of recording to get some out in podcasts. But mix it up. Remember about filmmaking, about the different kind of rules, the three ends of location, light, and length. And I'm wondering whether this is simply a return to what live streaming should be about, which is to mix it up, indoor and outdoor location. And yourself, having now produced over 100 Rod's Vlog um, episodes, uh, you know, it's it's a reminder to be very careful not to settle on something that maybe we were driven to do because of uh, the pandemic. Yeah, and and when I read this, I did actually wonder exactly what they were doing. So so effectively, <laughs> they are just going outside into mm-hmm. um, outside locations, squares or streets or whatever it is, and interviewing people outside. Um, I, I when I did first read, I thought, are, are they actually going out and watching stuff? outside are they all going and congregating in an area and watching a live stream on a big screen is that is that also happening or or what no i I think literally the the, um you know people are saying i'm sick of being stuck in my flat and we know obviously the 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 condition the trans people have gone through after the pandemic so i'm just going to do my live stream outside in the fresh air and then one to 2030 and suddenly a Parts of particular cities, in this case was Hong Kong and part of China, have become a live streaming spot. And the, the cities are providing them with power. You've got brands who are sponsoring the, the sessions with uh, the kit. And so pretty much what you would expect. But it's this idea of being out and sharing the location as part of the message as much as you know whatever knowledge you want to impart and and a lot of it is chatting to people who perhaps have a desire to be more anti-band and i just thought it was fascinating because that would have been probably how live streaming started remember people mm-hmm. used to go around uh, conferences um exhibitions they would mm-hmm. go be outside a building i love at the moment what's happening particularly on on, on shorts and and reels um people sharing history yeah. so they find a location Edinburgh, like you've done, or London, or, or Bordeaux, or Paris, and did you know type of message, and it lasts for ninety seconds, and it's so compelling to to this kind of show and tell, and, yeah. and I think for me, it's that reminder that you know you should look at uh, an attempt to vary your, your production formats. Certainly. So episode 97 of Two Geeks in the Marketing podcast will be live streamed from some square in the south of France. And I'm going to go and book my plane ticket right now. Okay, let's do that. So the final one I want to I want combine the Cadbury uh, virtual egg hunt uh-huh. and I suppose the Home Depot virtual um, kind of uh, DIY project or house build on Roblox, which has almost taken over from the, the other platform. So quick story. Uh, th- this was launched during the pandemic. We're back to that again. It's fascinating, you know, even all uh, as time has passed, there's still that. And the idea being that people can go visiting friends and family to bring the eggs or maybe to go into the garden. So they invented that. But that kind of backfired on me because I thought it was a very clever idea. So I went on a website, they partner up with Google Maps. You choose a location. I chose a, a park in Bordeaux where my sister lives and say, take my two nephews on this virtual um, Easter egg hunt. They thought that they were going to find real eggs. So 
when they got to the spot in the park where there was nothing, but essentially you hold your phone and you can see a kind of ARVR version of your egg, they burst into tears. Oh. So, <laughs> so then my sister rings me and says, you spoiled the, the day. So ever since that, I've been trying to make amends. So now what you can do is go online, hide the egg, but they also get a voucher to go and get a proper egg. Well, this is this is good stuff. I mean, again, maybe it's the same as the Hong Kong thing. It's, it's about getting people out there again. You know, even though the pandemic's over now, we do know that a lot, a lot of people are still working from home, and that's fine. That's absolutely fine. But I do have conversations with people who are still a little bit reticent about going out, especially into crowded places, because it's been hammered into them over the last couple of years, what during the pandemic, that it's not a good thing to go and be in big places with lots of people. Uh, and, and you know, we, we're human beings, we crave a companionship and, and we crave being in, in crowds and communities. So I think it's good that a lot of these campaigns are now getting us back out there. Super. Before we move on to our next segment, the content spotlight, I've got a quick question for you. Have you ever had a mullet? A mullet? Oh, in the past, I used to have lots of hair. You wouldn't you wouldn't <laughs> think that looking at me now. But yeah, when I was a student, um, I used to have long hair down to down to my shoulder because I was uh, into heavy metal and, and rock music and all of that sort of thing. And I've mm. even got some PR shots from my early days in big corporate where I have a fairly pretty useful sort of quiff standing <laughs> up on top. And the most embarrassing thing, Pascal, is that some of the U new uh, UK financial services publications, particularly Money Marketing Financial Advisors, still use some of these photographs. Really? Which are really 25 <laughs> years old now. And every time they use I say, for goodness sake, stop using that photograph. It may as well be a different person. That person's got hair. That person's got a mullet. You know, it's not me. I'm bald. <laughs> oh, excellent. We've been sharing a lot of news about ourselves, you know, uh, that's kind of interesting. So for you viewers and listeners, share your marketing news if you'd like to get a reaction from Roger and myself. And if you, if you like Roger, have pictures of yourself with a mullet, would like to have a copy too. Let's move on to the content spotlights. Now, in this part of the show, Roger and I surprise each other with a discovery from the interweb, an article, a podcast, a video, something that can help us reflect what it means to be a marketer in today's economy. So, Roger, what have you got for us this week? I'm going into marketing week and for the first time in 2023, and actually for the first time in quite a while, I'm going to talk about an article by... Mark Ritson. Yes. Of course. <laughs> now, interestingly enough, there were two articles that Mark um, has, has written recently, and the other one was the one about Toblerone. So I'm glad I didn't choose the Toblerone one because we just talked about that in news. But this, this is really fascinating, this article, and it highlights a problem, Pascal, which all of us marketers fall into. You fall into it, I fall into it. It's one of those things that we can't help. And it's an article like this that sort of makes us remember that we've got to avoid falling into this trap. So as I explain this, hopefully people will sit that listening or watching and think, oh, I actually, do you know what? I do do this, and I've got to stop myself from doing this. So the title of the article is Don't Listen to the Industry Sages. They're Not Your Ad's Target. And the byline is, advertising professionals' view of what makes a good ad is not only biased, it's usually wrong. Now, he uses this 
example of a new ad campaign, which actually came out in October 2022. It's an ad campaign for the tourist industry in Australia. The subtext is that actually Mark Ritson lives in, um, I think he lives in Tasmania, actually, in the, in, in the southern part of Australia, even though he writes for Marketing Week in the UK. He's actually based in the in the in Australia. Now, this is an uh, ad campaign that broke in October 2022 for the Australian tourism industry, and it uses a cartoon um, animated kangaroo, and the strap line is "Come and say good day." Now, this ad has been pilloried by agencies across Australia and marketers across Australia. They're saying it's cliched, it doesn't do its job, it's stereotypical, and it's, you know, the, the, the cartoon kangaroo and the cartoon unicorn is just pathetic and childish. And there's been a real big hoo-ha about this. But the advert has been phenomenally successful. And it's played out across the world, and it's actually increased bookings of people from outside Australia who are going to go to Australia on holiday or for a visit or whatever it is. And what Mark is doing in this article is highlighting an issue which affects most of us marketers, and he calls it market orientation. And the problem that we have as marketers is that we sometimes superimpose ourselves over the image we have of our customers. So to put it very simply, if I like red cars and I would buy a red car, I might unconsciously consider that all of my potential customers, if I was marketing a car um, garage or something like that, would like red cars. And I might be biased towards pushing red cars. But of course, Everybody is different. People like red cars, green cars, black cars, white cars, grey cars, silver cars, whatever colour cars they might be. And it's my bias that might affect the marketing that I'm actually putting together. And he uses this example perfectly because those agencies and all of those people in Australia who hate this advert are not the target market for the ad. It doesn't matter whether they like the ad or not. It's the people outside of Australia who the tourism industry wants to get to go to Australia. So they've actually done their work absolutely properly. They've researched with people living in the UK, people living in the, in, um, the United States, people living in Europe, wherever it is, and they've tested, and, and from what I can gather from this article, they've tested these ads to death. They've really, really done a lot of research. And that's why these ads have absolutely hit home, because they've resonated with the target audience, and they've been effective. And what Mark's saying is in, in his article, you've got to remember that you, you, the marketer, are not the customer. So I am actually just going to read a couple of paragraphs mm. out here. And he says, remember marketing orientation, the prime directive of our discipline, that we are not the customer, but rather we are the prime agent for the product. And as a result, everything we think about our product or service isn't just potentially wrong, it's probably massively biased. Because we aren't the customer, we are none of the target segments. We are the person selling the thing. And that means we cannot see 
what that thing looks like to those encountering it as a customer. You can't, as the ancient slice of what marketing wisdom puts it, see the label from inside the bottle. Now he says, this should be a simple thought easily grasped that so many marketers go native and lose all market orientation so quickly and so permanently. They assume their years in advertising mean they can spot a great bit of packaging or a winning ad, but actually, because you're not the customer, you actually lose out on this completely. And he then goes into quite an interesting rant with some quite flowery language which i can't read out on a family show but he then goes out to say this is possibly one of the reasons why a lot of adverts that win awards win awards because they are creative naturally but those awards are being judged by other advertising agencies who are not the customers so they will award awards to adverts which are creative but actually those adverts often turn out to be ineffective because they haven't actually targeted and spoken the right language to the right customers so if you actually look at marketing effectiveness awards and marketing creative awards you often get this clash because the ads that win the creative awards are often not the most effective and that's it pascal actually it's a really good article and as always it's very funny and it's got a lot of bad language in it as you would expect from from mark ritson <laughs> but i do think it's that lang it's that thing that we all do as marketers and, and i pick myself up on this frequently is i'll start thinking well i wouldn't buy that or i wouldn't want it to be like that and i have to slap myself and say no 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 you're not the customer you've got to ask the customer what they want because otherwise, you'll become a victim of this marketing orientation yourself. That is such a fine selection. As I was listening to you, I was reminded of the early days of website design. I was having cold sweats when I had memories of my boss saying, I don't, I don't like it, you know, yeah. because they wanted to create the website that they liked. So, well, with respect, your views on that is almost irrelevant. We find that customers prefer this color, this layout, and so on. But it took years and years to extract ourselves from that. And by extension, from advertising to website, then you have also you know, the, the the blogging or the kind of authored article where they were so anxious to show how much they knew for fear of being looked, you know, down upon by their peers that mm. the customers were left behind. Mm. And I think that's one of the hardest things, isn't it, in in, in marketing? You, you, I love this expression. You cannot see the label from within the, the bottle. There is another one in, in French, which I'm going to translate very clumsily, which is, you know, never ask a watchmaker to sell uh, your watch, you know, because <laughs> there's also that that disconnect between, you know, you're far too knowledgeable. You you want, of course, you know, expand and extend your own knowledge and, and be challenged. And, of course, the advert that you chose as the example is so simple and in a way, you know, um, yeah, embarrassing to, to for the professionals, they can't bring themselves to accept that this is actually what their job is. And this is the hardest thing to look at the, the, the vast knowledge you have about a subject matter, but find the one simple message and share that simple message, which in itself doesn't allow you to demonstrate to the world how much you know. Yeah, but of exactly. course, as we said on the show before, the job is to show how much you care. And yeah. there's a vast, vast difference, isn't it? Yeah, and we, you can see this happening all over. I mean, the metaverse mm. is a great example of this, isn't <laughs> it? You know, you've got Zuckerberg getting absolutely obsessed with 
getting everybody to wear these virtual goggles so that they can have meetings with cartoon versions of themselves. That's market orientation. He's saying, I, I, I don't mind doing this. This is what I want. And yet the vast majority of people in the world are looking at Zuckerberg and saying, what the hell are you doing here? And of course, I think Facebook are sort of moving off from that now, haven't they? They've right, realized yeah. what a mm-hmm. complete and utter disaster that was going to be and they've quietly closed it down that's market orientation that's exactly the example similar to the australian advert that mark ritson is talking about here in this article nice now my selection we've done this again has a link with yours even though you know we don't share notes and we don't really talk to each other before it's time to record so it's an article written by Raja Sagi, who's a senior director of product marketing for Google in the UK. And it's for, you know, their kind of uh, um, kind of thought leadership platform, Think with Google. And we've had a few articles and uh, reports mentioned on the show before. And the article is as follows, the power of introverts in marketing. And like yours, short article, but my, by gum is going to make you think. And I think it's a warning call. It's a a kind of reminder about how a marketing team needs to be led. So I think for me, the audience is two things, is twofold. The introverts who think that being in marketing means you have to be loud and brash, sadly. And the leaders of those teams who believe that those who do marketing are those who are loud and brash and come up with advertising concept within milliseconds. And I think what um, Rajasagi is, is warning people is almost this idea of if you're not careful, you can end up with um, a marketing division that is reactive that doesn't take time to analyze information, doesn't take time to understand an audience and therefore um, makes poorer decision uh, at the end of it. Now, I will say um, that's not my experience of, of marketing, but I can see evidence that the impact of social media in particular, where everything has to be short, has to be uh, sharp, has to grab attention and has to be a big clickbait and so on. If you do that for months, years and then, you may lose your way. So I, I think it's a really good article to read for anyone working in marketing, particularly if you're a team leader. Three sections, I would, would expect introduction. It tells a bit more about his personal story. The time of the introvert is now and harnessing the power of the introvert it's all to do this idea of almost reclaiming the very diverse function that belongs to the label of marketing you and i've discussed this time and time again on the show but i'm still to this day very very offended by someone i was interviewed on the webinar from a sales background who said marketing the pretty pictures department and this was like not that long ago. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, this is just uh, horrendous. But then you've got to stop for a moment and say, well, what has the industry done to sometimes be misunderstood to that degree and be labeled as the pretty picture department? Well, actually, uh, a lot. So what um, you know the article is suggesting is that there's a return to becoming a more analytical profession as opposed to a gut feeling profession, which I think is very, very interesting to be the case um, in some sectors. And of course, you will say, if you have a um, diverse team and you include introverts, what you'll find is that in general, although nobody's is like 100% one way, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a spectrum, isn't it? And depending on the culture of the business and where you are, so on, even mentions, for example, with his work that if you uh, go from, let's say, the UK to America, 
with a different working culture, you might find yourself to be actually a bit more introverted because you need to take stock of what's happening uh, and vice versa. So this idea of introverts, you know, liking to listen and take in all the information, that's really important before making a decision. And he quotes somebody that he's, he's worked with saying, this is where there's a correlation with what you've said, um, Roger, a catchy advert won't alone win your customers. And then you mentioned Jim Shark, a brand that I think is really well known, and how they switch from really acting on good feeling and reacting to what's out there, maybe reacting to the opinion of their peers, to taking the time to listen to customers and putting data behind behind their you know big big decision. So what therefore you know Raja is warning about is particularly with remote working, the impact of you know uh, kind of. Um, teams that can spread about and so on. There's been a, a trend, and I see this in my customers as well, Roger, of jumping, which is a term they all use. Can we jump on the Zoom call? Can we jump on the Teams call? Um, can, can I, oh, I had someone saying, you know, can I just um, sneak into your um, inbox, sending me a, a, some kind of spammy email, you know? So we're not just doing some weird physical uh, stuff with the marketing. So we're saying, you know, there's a bit of a, a habit of jumping into group conversations and asking people to make decisions or to react to something there and then. And that's okay for some, but not for all. So if you're a team leader, you've got to find a way to make sure that everybody, and that's done to you as a leader and understanding with your personal preferences, and you can use also from insight to mice breaks and so on, but you've got to find a way to allow people multiple ways to uh, input into the decision-making process so that everyone can be heard. And very much like you, I'll finish with a quote for this great article, really, a uh, really important one. Uh, managers and organization need to bring together different personality types and solicit a wide spectrum of voices, and that should always include the quiet ones. Yeah, yeah, this is this is really interesting, and, and I can see the parallels between my content spotlight as well. I've also come across that situation where people have referred to marketing as the colouring in department or the pretty pictures department, just like you have. And a lot of the time, the reason for that is, as we've said on the show many, many times, that for a lot of people, marketing has just become about advertising or communications. And we've forgotten about the products and the price and the, the customer and the strategy. And I think that both of these articles are saying, you know, we've got to go back to those first principles of absolutely and utterly understanding our customer and our segment. And then we create a strategy around that. And that needs analytics. That needs you to sit back and watch and listen. And maybe finally, Pascal, the tide is changing and we're starting mm. to move away from marketing being the colouring in department, going back to what it always should have been, a department that understands customers so well that it can create great products and then communicate the value of those products to those people. And, you know, you talk about analysing information, and nowadays it's so much easier than it was 10 years ago, yeah. 20 years ago. I mean, when you and I started in marketing, it was hard to access mm. data, you know, mm. and we had more trends and we had more of a, the barometer but now you can have literally very clear information from reading and listening conversation with this on twitter on quora on any of the others you've got many platforms we mentioned on the show that can help you and i've just realized i've just met up on the spot a wonderful segue for marketing tech and apps let's move on to that <laughs> 
So, Roger, what have you found that can make life easier as a marketer and content creator? Okay, this week it's all about video editing, and you've been kind enough to mention Roger Vlog a few times mm. in in the show. And recently, I've started using a couple of um, bits of software which have absolutely blown me away in terms of speeding up my editing process, but also just giving me the ability to add a little bit of polish to the videos I put together. Now, I love editing to the beat of music um so i will use epidemic sound to find a piece of music and i will then edit the scenes within my vlogs to the beat so most pieces of music as you know uh, are, are arranged around an eight beat structure and what i tend to do is each clip will either be edited to eight beats or four beats and it just looks nice because when people are watching you know they've got that sort of feeling of the beat of the music and the scene changes on the beat and it just carries the uh, the video along and a lot of filmmakers use this technique you know sometimes they will they will edit to the app, to each beat you know especially mm. in a fight sequence or something like that it can be really quite fast and it really does make make um, videos move along but editing to the music is incredibly difficult and incredibly fiddly and effectively what you have to do is you actually have to look at the waveform of the audio and you've almost got to listen to the music and every time you hear the beat you've got to tap um, the m key to create a marker on that mm. timeline which you can then use to edit but all sorts of things as you would expect make that incredibly haphazard for example if there's any delay or if the computer's running slow or whatever it might be you hit that m key not precisely on the right moment or whatever and it can just make the marker on either side of the beat or it doesn't get the beat properly and you can you know when you do it like I do, you can tell if you're editing to the to the beat and you don't get it on the beat. It's so noticeable; it, it really annoys me. So I would I was spending hours and hours doing this, and then somebody told me about this piece of software called Beat Edit. Now, let's face it; it explains exactly what it does before <laughs> I even need to tell you what it does. It does this work for you. So you basically, it's an, it's an add-on to um, Premiere Pro. Oh, and, right. and, and, and you you add it into Premiere Pro, it becomes an extension. And then effectively what you do is you click that piece of music and you can press a button and it basically listens to the piece of music, analyzes it, and then it creates a marker on every beat of the music. Now you can alter the parameters so that it's every eight beats, every four beats, every half beat if you want. But honestly, Pascal, this has been an utter revelation for me. Literally, I can edit a, a, a load of scenes to the music within minutes now, as opposed to hours. And that is literally the difference. Sometimes it could take me an hour to do a scene and edit it to the music. Whereas now, press the button, dig, 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 all these little things appear. And you just go, cut, cut cut shuffle 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 bang and it's there and this thing is remarkably accurate it is remarkably accurate i don't know how it does it there'll be some ai in there i'm sure even a piece of music like a piano a solo piano recital which doesn't actually have a beat you can hear this software mm. can actually work out where the beats would be if there was a beat if that makes sense you know the rhythm of the music or whatever the expression within the music it's there so if you love editing to the music in your and your videos 
this is absolute must buy beat edit it's from a company called ae scripts and they do all sorts of add-ons for um, um premiere pro and after effects and that sort of thing the second one is the toko motion bro graphics pack now again this is another like add-on to premiere pro and it gives you just about every form of graphics that you will ever need for your videos so you've got titles you've got lower thirds you've got logos you've got transitions but it goes much 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 further than that it's got all the social media icons as well so twitter facebook you know if you go into instagram you know how in your instagram stories you've got things that you can add in like location markers or or the the wavy hand and all of these things are in there um you know you've got um twitter likes you've got youtube likes the subscribe buttons the follow buttons everything you can think of my favorite one is it can do text bubbles you know text from mm. your phone and a lot of filmmakers use you know people having text conversations the actual text comes up on the screen it can do that and it looks like the iphone or the android you can choose which one you want it even has the graphic where the three dots are going like that while somebody's texting at the other end it's all of those sort of things that you might need in your in your videos and for a, i think it was about 40 quid after the dollar um, conversion it's got thousands and thousands of thousands of things in it most of which I'll never ever need, but the things that are are just worth it for having that. The social media stuff is just incredible. So Beat Edit and Toco Motion Bro Graphics Pack. There you go. Thank you very much. I must confess, I, I did cheat this morning and went on the Toco Motion Bro website because <laughs> I was so intrigued. And the library is just gigantic. Oh, it's incredible. Uh, so well done. I, uh, I've definitely been um, safeguarding this one. So well, we're going to move on from video production to audio production. Uh -huh. uh, this has been is my theme for, for today. So only yesterday, so hot off the press, the team at Captivate.fm released yet new features. Uh, they had a kind of a live tour hosted by the one and only Mark Asquith. I mean, this guy is so charming. I just don't know how he does it. And it all labeled on the podcasting 2.0 as a label. And it was really quite an interesting presentation because it was all prefaced by Mark's uh, kind of addressed state of the, the nation when he came to podcasting. And what I didn't appreciate is that over time, you know, very, very discreetly, almost, you know, um, something that you could say was done, um, you know, kind of underhand. Podcasting has become more and more um, difficult to um, not produce but publish and reach an audience because there are some brands who are creating walls, you know, and brands that I would be known to regular podcasters. But the challenge is that, which is that, you know, the idea of podcasting, which was started in the early 2000s, was to be um, very open you know, essentially almost playing back in terms of what the internet is all about, you know, free access to information and knowledge to the betterment of society and humanity. And what Mark was explaining is that there's been a strange movement by brands who don't necessarily understand podcasting and podcast creation fully, and they almost wanted to take it back to a radio-style environment mm. where you, you had to be a member, you had to pay, you had to do this and so on, as opposed to making the older content free. So actually, and I think, you know, I felt so proud for the team at Captivate.fm that we're part of a consortium of international podcasting organization to free up 
podcast again mm. and creating um, uh, almost like it's its own movement, which may well be ignored by some of the brands that want to create walls and keep it to themselves as if it's their own proprietary um, kind of information. So it's all to do with the RSS feeds, and don't worry about the technical stuff. It's all this idea of allowing those who are in the business of publishing podcasts freely to understand more about your podcast shows and episodes. So more tagging, more kind of elements such as the location, the duration, the authors, the themes, and so on. So what essentially they've been working on is a brand new way for podcast audio content to be understood by platforms and, and publishers so that you know you can find your audience better or the audience can find you um, much easier. But I just think it was fascinating. It's not something that I understood that um, podcast episodes were getting harder to be found by an audience because of brands and usually because there's money involved trying to use it more as a radio style uh, endeavor as opposed to freely uh, as blogs would be if you see what I mean. The other thing that they announced was um, on Captivate.fm you can have a podcast network so kind of you can group shows together and you can have now a podcast network feed that you can put on your own website and so on. So if you have more than one show, that could be important. They've made it even easier to put some uh, pre-roll um, and post-roll uh, adverts. So at the start and the end of, of an episode, you can put some new adverts easier. Interestingly, they've also created their own QR code creator to allow you to point people towards your uh, landing page on Captivate. So if you're doing a presentation, if maybe you send a document, you share a PDF, at the end you can put the QR code. And, and I think that's nice because I would allow the tracking within the Captivate.fm analytics board. And, and there's plenty more, including um, episode planning features and so on. But it's just wonderful to be able to um, give a UK company a shout out in a domain in a milieu that is often dominated by you know, our US friends and, and, and so on. So that would be the publications. What about production? Now, very often you and I have recommended people start uh, with simple audio editing software such as Audacity and so on. But there is also one that is even easier and simpler than Audacity. To get you started, you will outgrow the platform called Audio Mass. It's completely free. And literally what you do is you upload your um, sound files, which you have recorded in different ways. You can re record sound files using the platform. You kind of, you know, uh, link them together as you would with uh, some kind of Lego bricks. You can do some very simple uh, cleanup of the audio, although I would recommend Roger's selection from a few weeks ago of the Adobe Audio Enhance. I think that would just make life so much easier. But to do a quick montage of maybe a bit of music at the beginning, then your monologue or your interview, then a bit of music at the end or something you pre-recorded, I think Audio Mass would be a lovely way to begin. And then you can upload all that on Capiva.fm after, of course, you've used Roger's, as I mentioned, Adobe Audio Enhance. So it's twofold. Uh, you've got professionals like Captivate.fm and many others who are making it, uh, working very hard to protect the integrity. And I suppose the core value is what podcasting is all about, you know, to be an independent content creator and not having big brands getting in the way of that. And you've got developers like AudioMass and more that making it easier and uh, every week and every month to, for you to be uh, recording that audio as well. Fantastic. Yeah, I watched Mark's um, video yesterday as well. And quite a lot of the stuff that he was talking about, about people wanting to push podcasting into the, the background and make it, um, you know, 
hidden or paid for. Mm. I wasn't even aware of that. So, yeah, plus some fabulous new features, as you've said. No, absolutely. As we've said before, none of this would be possible without the hard work and vision of pioneers from the recent and distant past. Let's move on to this week in history. In 1882, the Zoo Praxiscope, invented by Edward Muybridge to exhibit photographs of moving animals, is shown at the Royal Institution in front of a sellout audience, which included members of the royal family, including the future King Edward VII. Well, in 1972, The Godfather, based on the book by Mario Puzo, directed by Francis Ford Coppola and starring Marlon Brando and Pacino, premieres at New York City. A year later, would win the Academy Awards for Best Picture. In 1981, the Sinclair ZX-81, the successor to the ZX-80, is launched in England, designed to be a low-cost introduction to home computing. The ZX-81 was the first personal computer to be later sold in the United States for under $150. And in 2002, Resident Evil, the action horror film series based on the Japanese video game franchise by Capcom, premieres at the Grandman's Challenge Theatre in Hollywood and opens in over 2,500 theatres a few days later. Wow. Resident Evil. Great game. Yeah, and great movie franchise. But am I right in remembering, because we did a a Sinclair special some months ago, you you, you own the Sinclair ZX-81. Yes, that's right. Um, Now, I remember the the ZX-80 being being launched, and that was that was remarkably cheap it was only about 100 quid um, but i remember at the time and the, you know we're, we're in the 80s i was still at school the only computer i had access to was something called a research machines 380z which was a gigantic bulky thing that the sign one of the science teachers had and you had to load basic into it using a cassette tape uh, and then suddenly the zx80 thing comes out for 100 quid that you literally just plugged into your tv mm. and, and it actually looked like a calculator it was just a big calculator it didn't have a proper keyboard it just had it just had a touch like touch pads um, with keys printed on top of them now the, the big problem i say it was a problem the, the issue i had with the zx80 was it didn't really have any graphics in it um, whereas the research machines 380z that i used to play on at school and we used to get to take home once in a while actually mm. had graphics that you could you could make little space invader games and you could plot graphics to appear the reason i got so excited about the zx81 when it came out was it did have graphics capabilities it wasn't as uh, um uh, complicated as sprites or or that sort of thing but you could create things using blocks and dots and that sort of thing so that's why i got excited about the zx81 because it, to me it was a proper computer because i could make games on it <laughs> yeah we had the auric atmos uh, at home it, it was just a wonderful time the 80s and i'm so pleased because you know both in france and in the uk schools really you know were enlightened in saying you know we're going to have a computer room build tech on because they knew that this was going to be our future i mean look at you know what we do today for our, our jobs and and even socially we use computers and and i would like to think that you know the computer skills that we have and the ease of uh, adopting something new or being curious and working things out even understanding why a computer breaks down it acts back to you know essentially where things were going wrong uh, very very often <laughs> in the early computers in, in the 80s i remember to this day you know when you would put a, a game 
and you had to play a cassette, you know, if I was plugged in and you had this weird sound. And then by the end, you 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 maybe waited half an hour, 45 minutes. It was a big, like, role-playing game. But you had no oh. idea whether it had worked until you start to play the game. And sometimes, <laughs> for reasons that, you know, we, we don't know, the game would just have a bug. So you had to rewind the tape and load again. So sometimes it could take a couple of hours before you could play the game, which nowadays is unthinkable because you just plug your PS5 or your Xbox and within milliseconds you can start to play the game. <laughs> I wanted to mention to you, I think I'm going to uh, talk about the Zoo Praxis scope and you've done a better job than I have to mention that because it's back to this idea of, you know, having a sense of origin so you know where things are going. So this was, you know, this idea of someone like Muirbridge has been linked to photography as well as, you know, the early version of moving images and um, solving a problem, which is creating a sense of immersion. So you, you have a single shot of maybe a, a horse jumping over a hurdle during a, a race. I'm assuming in Ascot, although you used to travel a lot in America as well. And it's so fast. Now, sometimes the human eye can't quite comprehend it, but also sometimes it's so beautiful, you wish you could watch it again. So himself and a few of his assistants and, and other kind of colleagues made it their business to capture not quite frame by frame, but close enough still images. And then how do you look at them? And they invented different versions from it was a flat disc to one which you can see in The Woman in Black, if you remember the film, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, that, that kind of rotoscope and so on. And if you just f look at a small open frame, like a little slot, then you see one image at a time and it gives the impression the horse is riding all that, the young girl is skipping the rope and so on. And what I'm saying is that this contribution that is, is sometimes actually assigned to others because there's a very, very famous one with a horse riding and the athletes jumping over obstacles and playing tennis. Um, you know, what I'm trying to suggest is now you can go to the IMAX and watch a 3D movie and be immersed, but you can trace the history back to why we enjoy immersion so much with sound and music to essentially what would be a very crude contraption you know and um, still images stuck on the side of a circular <laughs> circular uh, kind of rim and make it rotate and then you let go uh, and abandon yourself into you know the, the visual stimuli i just think it's important that people have this sense of history so that we can make sense of the metaverse we can make sense of why you know as you read it you know home depot would want to have roblox as part of the, the pandas and so on so i think it's a great contribution and once again it comes from the uk and then i want to kind of finish by saying it's not a mystery to you that when the uk was such an amazing pioneer in in transport in telecommunication everything else we've never had that breakthrough a la amazon or google or, or another no it's right isn't it everything um, we used to be the you know, champions of innovation and champions of you know bridges build being built and things like this, Pascal. And and now you know even yesterday they announced that the um, the high speed two rail thing is going to be. 
delayed and, and again and it won't even go into central London now apparently and I'm sitting there thinking well wasn't that the whole <laughs> point is to speed up the travel between London and Birmingham and now if you've got to travel five miles outside of London to get the train in the first place it's going to take you as long as you'll have saved to actually get to the station to get it so everybody will just get the exact original train so yeah it's a mystery I just actually wanted to throw in another this week in history item if I okay. may this is just something that came up in my feed this morning and it, it's just worthy of mention 36 years ago today was the was the launch of u2's album the joshua tree oh, now <laughs> believe it or not i was at university in 1987 and i got up at 6 a.m um, i was in a hall of residence at leeds i got up at 6 a.m i got the bus into leeds and i queued outside hmv until it opened at 9am queued up with quite a few other people and bought this album on vinyl and then hoofed it back as fast as i could to the halls of residence and put it on a record player and luxuriated in this album which i still listen to today in mm. fact i was listening to it yesterday without even knowing that i was imminently about to get to the 36th anniversary but what uh, what i just wanted to mention for it is that in those days we didn't have the luxury of there's a new album today i'll just go and get it off spotify instantaneously or i'll just download it off itunes i had to physically get up get a bus queue up outside hmv and buy the physical product but i love so much is though that nowadays people would still do that because vinyl's coming back so many people are buying vinyl and no doubt people will still buy the Joshua Tree on vinyl 36 years later. So sometimes, you know, all this digital technology that marvels us is as good, is fabulous, obviously, but sometimes, you know, the old way of doing it for some people is actually just as good, if not better. It's all about the experience. Um, I just want to make a quick note. We must, at some stage, include Resident Evil in film marketing because it's the movie, a bit like Eon Blade in 98, that almost opened the door to the Marvel uh, franchise as it is. I think this movie opened the door to the video game too. Uh, feature film yeah. transition and almost make it a legitimate effort as opposed to something that would be kind of derided and, and ridiculed by critics that allegedly know lots about <laughs> movies. But let's get back into the present with our creator's shout outs. Okay, Roger, so whose work would you like to celebrate today? Okay, I'm going to give a shout-out for Making Sang again. I think you, mm. you mentioned Making earlier on. Now, Making has had a shout-out on Two Geeks in a Marketing podcast before. She is the original, and I always credit her with that, she is the original FOMO creator, Fear of Missing Out, and she will work with con- conference producers or podcast hosts or whatever it is to create FOMO around your brand, and she does it remarkably well, and, and she's... She's a lover of live streaming, which is why you gave her a mention earlier on. She's finally, finally launched her own podcast, Pascal. And as you would expect, it's called the FOMO Podcast. Only been going a few weeks, and you and I are scheduled to be guests on the FOMO Podcast coming up in a few months' time. So that would be really exciting. So I just thought it would be really nice to wish-making all the best with the FOMO podcast. I know it's going to be absolutely awesome. 
Uh, wonderful. But listen, certainly to that, uh, a friend of the show and someone that we've known for many years, Simon Raybould, is my shout-out this week, the founder of Presentation Genius. If you are new to public speaking and presentation, but even if you are uh, kind of a, a, a practitioner of sort, you know, you will learn so much from Simon. And uh, for the last year or so, he's been producing those very short, sharp um, little videos on LinkedIn called Hashtag Talk Tactics. They're about 90 seconds, 20 minutes, but they make you really think and reflect on, you know, your own approach to either preparing a presentation, delivery presentation, and learning from that. So I'll put the hyperlink in the show notes because what it's done, so those uh, obviously have been on LinkedIn and one of the drawbacks of social media, it's very, very hard to go back into someone's history or back catalogue. So it's organised essentially like a, 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 he's grouped all the videos together via Vimeo and what he's asking people is to pay what you like. I think it's a lovely, lovely kind of gesture. But it's put all the effort in the creation, the recording, the videos, the repurposing, and the publication. So I'm sure you'll be able to, you know, let him know how much you appreciate the hard work and something you can refer to and kind of consume on the kind of bite-sized version. Just to give you an idea, he's already produced more than 50 and is committed to continuing for at least the remainder of this calendar year. So we're going to have an amazing library of content to go back to, sometimes just to be reminded you know, about public speaking and what we should be looking at. So give us some examples of things you talk about. Do not imagine your audience naked, um, <laughs> which I think is a fair, fair advice. Uh, how to describe something without describing it. And people are frightened of the consequences of public speaking and more you know you just know that he's got a wonderful way to um to talk about public speaking bring element of his experience as a kind of stage performer and producer as well as a really really competent uh, presentation design now and book writer and so more yeah all good stuff i uh, i've seen most of these when they were on linkedin and I, but as you say it's nigh on impossible to go back and find anything on linkedin so kudos to to simon for doing this in this way and and hopefully people will pay maybe a little please bit do. more please do yeah. yeah 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 absolutely right roger edwards this is our very last segment of the show film marketing just after this Okay, so Roger, your selection is The Menu, released in 2022. Let's watch a trolley together. Good evening. Welcome to Hawthorne. It'll be our pleasure to feed you. Tonight will be magical. Over the next few hours, you will ingest fat, salt, protein, and at times entire ecosystems. We're eating the ocean. We're eating the ocean. Are you crying? <laughs> it's just I find it all very moving. So it's okay that I'm not as into this as you are. Oh my god! You shouldn't be here tonight. You, my dear guests, are not the common man. Isn't that right? Is he going to keep doing that? What happens inside this room is meaningless compared to what happens outside. We are but a frightened nanosecond. Nature is timeless. What the hell is going on? I love you all. We love you too, sir. Any questions? 
this bergamot I'm getting, Chef? Yes, it is. Well, Pascal, would you eat in that restaurant? No, no, <laughs> no, no. And uh, I mean, what an experience, you know, both visually, but also, uh, you know, by the music and so on. Uh, for me, what was fascinating is this is your, the, the, your, you've already selected about a month or so ago the Banshees of Inisherin. And I was thinking, so Roger's going through an island theme at the moment because the Banshee of Inisherin. So we're back on an island. Um, it had this incredible um, range from horror to comedy, satire to, you know, kind of um, commentary on to the society, some dig at celebrity status, social media, and so on, but crafted into really an gorgeous film and the music was aptly so this juxtaposition of genre and and style was very very jarring which makes you as uncomfortable as the guest in that restaurant um i'm torn whether or not we should say more but then then again uh, which is probably one of the tactics we want to discuss in a moment the the teaser trailer we just seen reveals quite a bit about the storyline in any case mm. i think they that from the work i did on looking at the uh, marketing for this i think they struggled with putting the trailer together because it's very very difficult to put anything in mm. a trailer that doesn't give anything away um literally they would all be able to all they'd be able to do is introduce the characters and if you actually look at the teaser trailer that we watched and then the full trailer, I think the full trailer is only about 40 seconds longer than the teaser trailer, which proves to me that they that they couldn't actually add much more in to what no. they'd already teased. Otherwise, they'd have totally blown it. I mean, I, I think they do actually give quite a bit away, and it's pretty obvious from watching the teaser trailer what actually happens and what the twist is. But the main trailer doesn't really give much more than that away. It's just maybe slightly longer clips from, from each of the scenes in the teaser. So I do think they struggled with this one because they didn't want to blow the plot too much. But as you say, it takes place on an island. It takes place at a very um, high-end five uh, three michelin star restaurant called hawthorne and the uh, the head chef at hawthorne is played by a really quite sinister ray fines and we've got two um youngsters played by anya taylor joy and nicholas holt who go to the restaurant and, and obviously things happen one of the things that i do love about this is that i'm a massive fan of masterchef uh, particularly a massive fan of the Australian version of MasterChef. And, you know, you do get those sometimes quite pretentious Michelin star chefs appearing mm. on MasterChef. And, you know, it almost becomes a bit of a joke, you know, when they, they add these tiny little flowers onto their perfectly yeah. crafted one little um, piece of meat or <laughs> whatever. It's using tweezers. Like, oh, tweezers. You know, like and, you think, and you think, oh, for goodness <laughs> sake. And, and this this film very successfully sets sort of sends all of that up doesn't it and and and, and sort of highlights what an absolute joke it can be and and there's a lovely twist at the end involving a burger which we probably shouldn't talk about because that might ruin the the entire film but yeah it, it's a it I, I, we really enjoyed it. We we thought it was um, it, it it's a sort of subgenre of films that are going on at the moment, isn't it? Where you've got a group of rich, possibly quite entitled people 
being brought together in a location and getting their comeuppance. You know, the, the, the second Knives Out film, The Glass Onion, is another mm. example of that sort of genre where people are being brought together and then something nasty happens to them. But I, I think for me it was that sending up of the, the restaurant culture. And in fact, I managed to find, and this was a, this was a comment that a chef had left on the YouTube um, comment section underneath the teaser trailer. And this chef said, this is amazing. I'm a 30-year <laughs> chef, and to be perfectly honest, not going to say many kitchens and industrial people wouldn't smile and nod at many points through this film. As well, everything was so well done. It's a fresh new story, great social commentary, wildly accurate portrayal of how our craft has been compromised by social media critics and people just calling themselves foodies without actual knowledge of what we put into and sacrifice for our craft. This is by far the best movie I've seen this year. Perfect blend of comedy, thriller, dialogue and stellar acting. Really can't say enough i'll leave it with the trailer doesn't do the movie justice and you think you know what this movie will be until you don't and i guess that sort of sums up as well what we said before is that the trailer struggles because it it can't really give away too much otherwise it really would ruin the film for people yeah and, and i think you know for me the, the story of the making of the film is almost just as fascinating. So uh, I read, uh, because I mean, we will focus just on the marketing effort of the producers themselves, but of course, the media and the fans, um, and vloggers and, and bloggers have reviewed the film. And in fact, sometimes fell into the trap of trying to see, for example, where there's some messages and, and symbols in the different dishes. I said, no, you're falling for the trap of being pretentious about what the movie is trying to criticize. So, but one of the uh, the writers, Will Tracy, um, essentially shares that it was an experience when he was on his honeymoon in Norway, if memory serves, where he was taken on this bizarre kind of evening where they had to go on the boat and an island to a restaurant. So he was saying it was so unnerving to be taken to somewhere that you, where you didn't have a lot of control, you know, and be served food and so on, that it was difficult to enjoy the food because the the sense of what what happens next, you know, and the film plays that sense of dread particularly well with um, the the different people. So I think it's about twelve individuals invited, representing different facets of the foodies. Can I just say, by the way, the moment I heard the term foodie, I just thought it was stupid, and <laughs> and makes no sense. I mean, it's like where everybody eats food, you know, and to put a, 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 a vowel y at the end makes you a foodie. It's just bizarre. <laughs> and uh, and and of, and of course you you will, you will understand that I come from a culture of France where we enjoy food without much pretension, but they are pretentious chefs, of course, mm -hmm. and and dining kind of establishments. But in general, we enjoy the flavor and the company, as as I know you, you do too. Uh, so for me, the idea being that so he was born out of a real life experience. He wanted to then go further and explore further. But they went as far as talking to real chefs, you know, and in fact, uh, it was a French chef that uh, helped with the creation of the different dishes because, uh, you know, back to the cinematography, it looks stunning when it's presented, even though I wouldn't want to be in, in that place <laughs> whatsoever. And they even use, as a second unit director, someone that is, um, was already familiar with filming um, food documentary and going to the kitchens and so on because on occasion it looks like some of the shows that you enjoy watching that extreme close-up to to what they're eating the plates and so on and it looks exquisite but it's also uh, pretentious and listening as you go around the tables from the food critics who's trying to find the the, the most bizarre adjective <laughs> to label <laughs> what they see 
all the way to those rich people who basically couldn't care less and have an incredible sense of entitlement where they go as far as lying about being someone's birthday to get a free cake out of the restaurant. <laughs> You've got all the bad behavior that, you know, uh, where well, you read out a moment ago, that chef is talking about being there. Uh, yeah, it's just really, really well thought out and well crafted. Yeah, so the marketing, Pascal, um, probably not the best marketing campaign and and i do think they've missed a few tricks here and i'll and i'll come back sure. to that uh, as to what they may have done but i do like the posters for the film um so we'll mm -hmm. start with those the posters I, I guess as you said there was there was 12 different characters of people at this restaurant so it probably would have lent itself to a series of character driven posters that we've seen from films before like um death on the nile etc and, and lord of the rings what they've done here is they've mainly focused on anya taylor joy's character and ray fine's character so they each get their own individual poster character poster the menu that's the name of the film obviously that the, the quite nice and simple um, strap line is painstakingly prepared brilliant execution um, there's quite a lot of subtext in the, in that uh, in that little um, strap line there I do like that uh, then there's the the poster which focuses on Ray Fines and of course he's resplendent in his chef whites I was getting real Ernst Stavro Blofeld vibes from this, <laughs> yes. uh, this particular poster, uh, which is quite interesting given that Ray Fiennes also plays M in the James Bond films. And then the, the third poster is more of an ensemble where it actually has Anya Taylor-Joy, Nicholas Holt, and Ray Fiennes in the foreground, but the other 12 dinner guests, I guess, in the background. So, so in, interesting and very um, uh, simple posters but very colorful and very um striking yeah. i, I think the really sharpness good. the photographies were jumped at me and yeah. it seems to be something we've seen more and more now potentially that could be the, the calling card for such like uh, such like pictures sorry mm -hmm. um like you i was thinking oh we're gonna have the um, character posters uh, of all the different guests and we don't get it and at, at first you could be forgiven to think um, it was um, a miss from the marketing team or it was a bit lazy. But actually, once you watch the film, you get it. And I like this complicity with the audience where, you know, ultimately only the character of Margot and the chef um, break the fourth wall and look into the lens. If you look at the ensemble poster, all the others are too busy either being pretentious about the food or if you look very very closely they're very very back you see i think who would be the first victim so what i like about the marketing is that they are giving from the teaser trailer and so on they are giving a lot away but it can be missed it's a blink of an eye mm, that's that's right so so we've talked about the the, the trailers themselves and how the teaser and the and the main trailer are actually more or less the same um, and and the the main trailer is only slightly longer Obviously, as you would expect, there was a, there's a web there was a website. Um, they've got an Instagram, they've got Facebook, they've got Twitter. Quite a lot of good stuff on Twitter, actually. If you look through it, mm -hmm. there's um, quite a lot of short clips which are still on Twitter. What I did find about this, Pascal, and, and bear in mind, this film was only released towards the back end of 2022, is that a lot of these links are broken. And these websites uh, don't exist anymore, and that's literally. I mean, we've 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 had a bit of a, a moan about some companies that take down websites for films that are 10, 15, 20 years old. But you seriously don't expect a website to be um, starting to fall apart 
literally months later. I mean, we're only three or four months from away from the launch of this, and already their social media links are um, broken. So that's not a very good show, I, I, I don't think, and, and, and they should probably go in and fix that. I would said it before, give us the job, people. Yeah. You know, Roger and I will look after your website <laughs> um, happily, but I think you're right. It's awfully brief, and I, I will say as well, and listen, we're not part of the meeting. We're not at the strategy. We didn't look at the data, you know, from their audience profiling. But what I find as well is you've got the campaign leading up to the theater release, then there's months of sounds, and then it comes back for the DVD and so on. And, and I think, do you know, in this day and age, with everything that you and I have discussed, for example, and looked at, there's a lot you can do in between those big milestones of theatre release and DVD Blu-ray release to engage the audience. And again, between those who've seen it, and that can kind of be complicit in creating maybe some memes, and, and which people have done of their own back, all the way to the audience who perhaps didn't get a chance to go to the theatre. I, I regret, I think this is a movie to be seen on the big screen, mm. personally, mm. But, but there we are. Um, I, I think there's so much you could do. You're absolutely right. So... Um, the actual launch um, coincided with the, the autumn series of festivals throughout the world. Um, quite a few interesting things that happened at the Toronto premiere. They um, had a load of cheeseburger trucks to tie in with that scene in the film, which we probably can't talk about without ruining it for people who haven't seen it. And the renowned chef Dominic Crenn, the owner of Three Michelin Star Restaurant, Atelier Crenn in San Francisco. He was the food advisor on the production, as you said, and he did publicity to support the film. And in the UK, they teamed up with Waitrose uh, and ran promotions in the Waitrose magazine. Now, I'm surprised, actually, that they didn't do more tie-ins with other food brands um, or other food brands didn't want to do tie-ins with this or maybe they didn't want to because of the the, the uh, subject matter of the film but it just seemed to me that not only waitrose but other food brands could have got in on the act here and uh, and promoted themselves and the film at the same time it's fascinating think? because i mean on, on one hand this is a a movie that is is an attack on the you know how silly everything has become i mean some of the behavior of the of the, of the guests you, you laugh out loud uh, and then you also have the behavior of the, the the chefs and the sous chefs, which is just as ludicrous. So I think there's almost a symbiotic relationship where it's all BS all the way and people are just <laughs> feeding off on each other. Yeah. Um, but within that, they didn't shortchange the audience. So they use, you know, uh, the French chef, you know, Dominique, and, and, and she's been able to bring on the experience, but, you know, creates essentially works of art. But within that, you've got a character of Margot, who is essentially the one that should not be there. The uninvited is almost like the bit of grit in the, in the oyster, um, who basically speaks on behalf of us, the audience, yes. saying, I'm still hungry. <laughs> this yeah. is just nonsense. And, you know, the breadless plate and that kind of things. Um, and what's what I love about it is that it's a movie that really brings the audience in, you know, mm -hmm. it doesn't create a wall. And, and Margot is, is our, is our messenger. She's a spokesperson, um, which I think plays to strong female character, which I always kind of love, but also this idea of ultimately these are um, dishes prepared, prepared by a woman uh, in a male dominated world. So there's a lot going on in a movie, which is why I've read people it's only three, four times and they get a lot out of, you know, watching it and not just at once. And the one of the interesting 
tie-ins that I found when I was looking at this is something that happened in the Time Out magazine, Pascal. They actually created a spoof campaign. Did they? <laughs> yeah, so, so basically what they did is they ran an article in Time Out effectively reviewing this Hawthorne restaurant, okay. but they reviewed oh, it as right. if it was a real restaurant. So they included photos from the film of the dishes and, and effectively wrote that article as if it was, you know, uh, written by Jay Rayner or um, or one of those uh, celebrity uh, um, critics that they have on MasterChef. They actually wrote it as if, as if it was one of those. And then they said, if you want to book... Um, a table at the restaurant, click this link. And of course, if you click the link on the in the article, you don't go to a restaurant, you actually go to the web page for the um, the actual uh, restaurant itself. Nice. And then of course, uh, uh, in the next edition, they actually had to admit that this was a spoof um, and uh, sorry if you fell for it, et cetera, et cetera. I think if you did read all the way down, it did say that it was a spoof at the end, but mm. I'm sure some people were taken in. Um, there was also time out extended on that and created the same sort of spoof on their um, Instagram feed as well. So five reasons were dying to try out <laughs> London's bougiest restaurant. Um, so again, they're using the language from the film, the imagery, and uh, effectively, uh, again, taking a little bit of the the uh, the rip out of the restaurant industry. You know, you cannot eat, you can only taste the restaurant that never reveals its recipes, the restaurant that doesn't allow you to leave your seat. All of that was included within this spoof campaign. So that was quite interesting. But overall, um, you know, there was a mini campaign on on in Instagram as well, using some um, shorter clips from the film. But overall, yes, I like the posters. Very visual, as you've said, striking photography, teaser trailer and main trailer as we've said probably couldn't give much away but apart from that i do think they they missed a trick here because there could have been so much more certainly on social media i think and so so many much more tie-in with other food brands so maybe they just decided they didn't want to do that or they didn't have the budget but i do think they've missed a trick with this yeah and i mean if it's true that the word of mouth marketing has been quite something. I mean, if you look at the reviews and the comments, and like I say, people trying to d d you know, and, and decipher messages that were not there, and as if falling into the trap of becoming as pretentious as the guest or, yeah. or the group uh, or, or the cooks and so on. Um, so it was it was very tight. It was very finite uh, in terms of time as well. I mean, the one that I did like, but again, it was just like a handful of those uh, on Instagram. You know, they, they would have a sentence like. Um, you know, a, a fine place to dine, mm. but the end would be struck off in red, so you yeah. end up with a fine place to die. So you had, um, <clears throat> excuse me, all this going on, but there's only three or four of those. There's not like um, a, a mini campaign, so uh, and then they jumped to something else and, and, and so on. So there was definitely a, a campaign around it, but I wonder whether the steer was around, which is how we began this recording today, a physical um, venues. So you talk mm -hmm. about the, the festivals, um, creating, you know, uh, kind of um, marquees and, and booth and having kind of uh, foodie vans and, and that kind of things. So I wonder if that's where they've gone for. Mm -hmm. and, and social media has been there for that to support th th those activities. It'd just be fascinating to talk to them. Yeah, it would. It would. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for choosing the menu. I won't thank you for spotting my night's sleep, though, because I kept either thinking about it or <laughs> this feeling of unease, thinking, what have I just seen? Because <laughs> it reminded me a bit 
Excuse me. It reminded me a bit of a very old French movie called La Grande Bouffe, where oh. very rich people eat themselves to death, um, <laughs> which I think was then mocked by Monty Python in... Um, was it? Um, oh, which one was it? Although it was the uh, meaning of life, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, Mr. Right. Creosote. Yeah. So you <laughs> had, you had that. Thin mint. <laughs> <laughs> you also had, it felt as though one of the first Agatha Christie book I read where people go on an island. Ah, um, yeah. I yeah. think it's called, yeah. nowadays it's called, and there there's there were only one, you know, so one by one people die, uh, and we don't know who, who it is. I was like, all that going on. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed the, the film. Thank you very much for bringing it to my attention again, because I'd forgotten about it. And yeah, it was a pleasure to look at the, the marketing and lots of good ideas, but a lot of if onlys. Mm, definitely. Everyone, this was episode 96. Thank you so much, Roger, for being such an amazing co-host. For you, please leave comments, messages, and suggestions about which film we should review next time in the usual places. Until the next one, go out there and make sure your marketing's on right. I was Pascal Pintoni, and he was Roger Edwards. Mm -hmm.